Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here as part of a little filmmaker miniseries that I'm doing right now as we kind of build up to the Oscars. As you know, this is February 5th, and there was going to be another guest that was slotted in, painter Elizabeth Meggs. That is actually going to take place next week. So we're doing like a little preemptive filling in, but it just so happens that my guest today is part of the filmmakers miniseries. So it works out really well. Before I started podcasting, in fact, quite a few years before I started podcasting, I was always a writer in some shape or form. When I was in high school, I would fill my dental notebooks with stories that have actually wound up sticking around to the point where they are now in book form. You can get both Excelsior and Sequel Ever Upward at bookstores on Amazon, And part three, Greater Glory, is currently in production. So there's a lot going on there. But one thing that I really owe a debt of gratitude toward in terms of getting me really comfortable with my writing is the time that I wrote for a pop culture website called 411mania.com. And I did a weekly column there called Scene Anatomy 101, where I would take a specific scene from a different movie each week and I would dissect that particular scene and show why it's significant to the rest of the film. And it was so much fun to do. I wound up doing about 200 of those before I finally stepped away from it. And the column went over well enough that the webmaster, Ashish Pabari, asked me to do a weekly movies and TV zone article that would take place every Thursday. So he wound up really keeping me busy and I always appreciate that. And I really appreciate the readers that would take the time to reach out to me. And one in particular that I've become friends with almost immediately happened as a result of me putting out a column on the film Dogma by Kevin Smith. Now, as you see, considering that I'm podcasting, Kevin Smith is continues to play a big part in my life. Hi, Kevin, if you're listening. And This particular scene was the garage scene that plays very late in the film between Matt Damon as Loki and Ben Affleck as Bartleby. And it was a really great meaty scene that was 
I would say was one of Ben Affleck's best performances. And I would say it's right up there with Matt Damon's. It was really great to see the two of them really working well together with just the two of them in that particular scene. And it turns out that a reader reached out to me to let me know of his affection, not only for that scene, but also for the movie in general. And that was a gentleman from Canada that we're speaking with today. His name is Luke Annand. Luke has gone on to start up his own podcast called Ramblings of a Guy from Regina, which you can find on SoundCloud and I believe on iTunes as well. We'll go ahead and correct that once he joins us. And he has also been a very voracious writer himself to the point where he is very much a student of film. He has been a production assistant for various projects up in Canada. He has also gone on to get into screenwriting, and he has some really fun stories to share with us for his screenwriting venture. And so this is going to be a lot of fun because Luke really personifies the Excelsior journey because he is constantly evolving as he goes on through life. So it's going to be great to hear him. And without further ado, please meet my guest, Luke Annan. Luke, how are you today? I'm doing great. And just to correct you there, right now the podcast is only available on iTunes. I know there's a bunch of different other platforms that I can put the podcast on, but I haven't looked into platforms just yet because for me, my podcasting is more like a hobby. It's something that I do to sharpen my writing and my editing skills and also to keep in contact with people that I've met at different places and times of my life and to try to keep those relationships going. And actually, I'm a little bit inspired by you because right now I'm editing my two-part best of episode that I do every year where I do my 10 best list for my picks for the best movies of the year. And then me and two other guys that I know, we each write our own three individual best TV lists. And then we assign a points value system to them so that we have a combined 10 best TV list, which can be really interesting at times. And now, speaking of the stuff that I work on, I want to do a little mini series of podcast episodes, kind of taking inspiration from you, in that I want to interview people that I work with on the different projects here in Winnipeg. And I already have my locations department episode. And now I'm just sort of trying to get people together, like a mini series of episodes where each episode interviews people from a different department, where you have a hair and makeup department and a grip, electrics, locations department and a AED department. And just trying to see where that goes, because we have this really rare window of opportunity where right now nothing's going on. But by March, it's just going to be super busy again. And we can sort of touch on that later. Excellent. Excellent. That sounds terrific. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that. And I hope that all of my listeners are as well. And if you're not familiar with Canada, Regina is spelled like Regina, R-E-G-I-N-A. So by all means, take a listen. You'll actually hear me in several episodes. The two of us, we spoke at great lengths about Star Trek The Next Generation, about film music, about the Nightmare on Elm Street series, about other horror series. There's a whole lot that we've discussed and quite lengthy discussions, I must say, as well. So we'll start off just as, as I always do here. What was the lightning bolt moment that made you decide that you wanted film to be as big a part of your life as it is? Was it something that you knew you always were going to work in? Was it something that you were going to make a career out of? What was that moment for you? Was there a particular movie that really kind of started you on the path or was it just film in general? 
Well, film in general, definitely. Like, I can't remember a time that I was never into movies. And it's kind of runs in my family because my mom loves movies and my grandma loves movies as well. So I kind of feel that it's just part of the family. But if I can narrow it down to one particular, not even just a movie, but a sequence, it's the train sequence at the end of Back to the Future Part 3. My folks recorded it off of the TV, and actually the tape that it's on had another Robert Zemeckis movie, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a classic in and of itself. And Absolutely. Me having kids is like a 0.01% chance. But in case of that does happen, the moment I'm looking forward to this, you know how some parents, they film their kids watching Empire Strikes Back for the first time and it's the whole Luke, I am your father. I want to do that with Who Framed Roger Rabbit with the big reveal of Judge Doom turning around and it's the big red eyes and it's the, remember me, Eddie? When I (laughs) killed your brother, I talked just like this! Like, it is a collective (laughs) moment that we all our pants. Oh, it's great. That was so much fun. Yeah, um, and I'd like to refer to Who Framed Roger Rabbit as baby's first noir. Yeah. Yeah. yeah basically, it, it, it really is. Yeah. If you want to get your kids into film noir without having to show them Chinatown or LA Confidential or any of the stuff that's too risque, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is the perfect movie to show them. But getting back to Back to the Future Part 3, the same tape that had Who Framed Roger Rabbit recorded off of it, it also had the train sequence from Back mm-hmm. to the Future Part 3. And I would watch that sequence over and over and over again because that sequence, any action sequence that you can think of, Back to the Future 3, in my mind, the train sequence tops that. And I saw that when I was... I don't know, maybe five or six or something like that. And it was like, okay, I want to make movies. I want to give somebody else the exact same thrill I got watching that. It really is just a tremendous, tremendous sequence. And I'm always very, very fond of that film. And I'm really fond of the entire trilogy. I was really taken by all the different twists and turns that it took. And to put the bulk of your film in the Old West and make that as the climax of this entire trilogy, it took some guts. It took some serious guts on Zemeckis and Gale's part to make that happen. And the fact that like everything built toward it in such a fluid way was really something. And what you were saying, the timing of everything, all the different shots, the suspense, the music. God bless Alan Silvestri. That's one of his finest pieces of music right there. And just the way that it had that crescendo, right? And then not only just the sequence itself, but then the denouement where the time machine gets destroyed. And then the final scene of Back to the Future Part 3 is the perfect way to end a trilogy. It really solidifies the bond between Doc and Marty. And when Jennifer has, I brought the note back from the, now it's erased. Of course it's erased. Well, yeah. What does that mean? It means your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one, both of you. And then just that final exchange of, hey, Doc, where are you going now? Back to the future? Nope. nope. Already, Already been there. Been there. And then every time I see the time locomotive take off, I get chills just talking about it. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's just, it leaves it so on the absolute perfect note. That moment, absolutely. That's a wonderful crystallized moment right there. That whole train sequence, it really is fantastic. So from there, you had that moment. You've been able to hold on to it for all these years. So from high school, did you go into college to study film or was it something? Oh, yep, absolutely. University of Regina to the film program there. And then just to give a really quick sum up version of 
where I'm at at this point. Went to the U of R to get a degree in film and video production. Got that in 2008 and I graduated right when the recession hit. And then a year later, my folks were like, okay, you can still pursue the film. You should go get a diploma in library information technician just so you could get a job other than working in warehouses. So I went to Toronto for two years and I barely passed. Just by the skin of my teeth did I get that diploma and I never ended up working in a library because it's sort of a catch-22 thing of, oh, they can't hire you unless you have experience and you can't get experience unless somebody hires you. So even though the reason I went to Toronto ended up being a complete bust, I'm still glad that I went there because it led to a bunch, you know, me starting my own podcast. I went to TIFF for two years in a row. That's the Toronto International Film Festival. I started writing for this site that was based out of Toronto, and I met a few people that became some of my most frequent guests on the podcast. And most importantly, it gave me the kick in the ass that I need to get my own film career going. And so while I was there, I wrote the outline for what ultimately became my first film. I can say I'm a maker because I actually made a film, and it's this short film called Rough Sketches. And we can loop back to that. But after I came back to Regina in 2011, a year later, our tax credit was cut by our provincial government, which basically means that our really successful film industry that we had there was our provincial government told a billion dollar industry to fuck off. Mm. And so because of that, I thought, okay, where can I go to pursue my film career? As much as I love Toronto, Toronto and Vancouver are really super expensive to live in, and there are legions of people ahead of you there. And mm -hmm. so really, the only option was Winnipeg, which was only a six-hour drive away. It had its own film industry, plus I had family there already. And so I moved there April 1st, 2013. So I'm two months shy of my six-month anniversary of living here in Winnipeg. And then I basically had to start at Gore One again and just doing a daily work of working on different productions here and there, mostly doing parking lockups, which is just me sitting in my car for eight hours listening to podcasts while waiting for the trucks to show up. And then 2013, I actually lucked out because about two months after I moved there, I did two weeks on this movie called Heaven is for Real. And then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have it in my collection, and it's mainly because it's sort of like a memento of, oh, this was my first film gig. And right. then I would do a few days here and there. There wasn't anything in 2014, but then 2015, I did 10 days on A Dog's Purpose. And mm -hmm. then 2016, that's when things really started picking up. And then 2017 was when I finally had enough days to officially become a member of the DGC, the Directors Guild of Canada. You have different guilds and unions involved in film productions, and the DGC covers the locations. And so after that, the president of the guild there, Kathy Edgar, she was also the locations manager on this new show that was starting up called Burden of Truth. And the first season of Burden of Truth was my first full-time film gig where I was, was in the location department where basically you have to show up an hour before everyone's call time and you're changing the liners in the garbages, you're setting up tents, and also during the day you have your lockups so that you're the film for the general public. And most of the time people just take one look and then they walk away. But I always notice you get three questions. You have what's going on, what's the movie, and it's always a movie, and who's in it? And I wouldn't say we're at the bottom of the rung, but we're fairly low within there. And I actually enjoy that because you get a perspective on the whole run of the production. And so you're seeing how a well-oiled machine works and you kind of learn from that. Nice. Yeah, and so I've done two seasons of Burden of Truth so far. And also this movie that's coming out in April called Breakthrough. Oh, very cool.
yeah. Very cool. So yeah, so you've gotten so much valuable experience just by being at the right place at the right time and being able to take advantage of that. That's terrific. So yeah, let it never be said that patience and bullheaded determinism never paid off. Yeah, that's, you definitely speak the truth about that. That's something that I hope a lot of our listeners really take to heart. So just remember, patience is definitely a virtue. It's not just a cliched saying there. It's a cliched saying because it's true. And so you just got to remember that you just have to keep on pushing forward. Obviously, if it's what you want to do and you feel like you're in the right direction to do it, then by all means, you got to stick with it because it will pay out for you in the end. So since then, since you've been doing all of that, you've been doing all the PA work, when did you decide that the time was right to start your screenplay ventures? Okay, well, first off, back in 2009 when I was in Toronto, and like I said, it gave me that kick in the ass that I needed to make my first short. I find that when it comes to my stories, there's a fictional film component to it, and then there's also a personal component to it. And with my first short film, Rough Sketches, the personal component of that was my cousin Landon, he passed away. He had two different kinds of cancer going on at the same time. Like he's like one of 14 people in medical history that that happened. And his name is a medical textbook somewhere. And seeing my Aunt Jill just going through this really public form of grieving and just feeling completely helpless of when a family member dies and seeing the public form of grieving and the helplessness of wanting to help, but having no idea how to do that. And then the film aspect of it, there were three inspirations for rough sketches. There was the classic Twilight Zone, No Country for Old Men, and oddly enough, The Little Mermaid. Huh. So amazing. Back up. Uh, so uh, in terms of Twilight Zone... You know, that inspiration finds in every, you know, how, how that uh, inspiration just kind of pops up at the most random places. Right. So with Twilight Zone, it was basically storytelling structure where you watch the classic Twilight Zone and in 22 minutes, they're able to pack in so much plot, character, and theme all within a really great economic short amount of time. With No Country for Old Men, as a writer, you get into your head a little bit and you're trying to create witty dialogue and great repartee and awesome monologues that your actors are going to chew in. And then you see something like No Country for Old Men, which is the most stripped down action thriller you could possibly imagine, where there's no music, very little dialogue, and it is one of the most tense experiences you will ever have watching a movie. And so when you see that, and it's like, oh yeah, right, film is a visual medium. You tell your story visually. And so that's yeah. something that I definitely keep in mind where, yeah, my scripts have tons of dialogue in there, but during the really important scenes, everyone shuts the fuck up. <laughs> and then the third inspiration for that was Little Mermaid, which that's another reason that I'm so glad that I was in Toronto for those two years was my first Toronto National Film Festival. I saw this documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is Terrific a doc documentary. Yeah, it's amazing documentary about the period at Disney between 84 and 94, where they went from dead last and on the brink of irrelevance to the powerhouse that it is today. And seeing that movie, it actually made me want to rewatch The Little Mermaid, which is a movie I had hated ever since I was four. And so mm -hmm. I rewatched the movie, and given the time and place where I am in my life, and I watched the movie, and I'm like, oh, f me, I do want a part of that world. <laughs> And then listening to the commentary track on it, they talked about how every Disney movie, they always get tons of letters from fans saying how much they appreciate it. And with Little Mermaid, 
they noticed that they got a lot of letters about fathers and daughters. And there was one letter in particular, which was from this New Jersey state trooper who he and his daughter had a massive falling out and hadn't spoken to each other in 20 years. And so he goes to see the movie, which is a miracle in and of itself, that a state trooper from New Jersey is seeing a right. Disney movie. And the movie connected with him so much that he extends an olive branch to his daughter and now he and his daughter have a great relationship, which that story in and of itself, people ask, oh, why do you want to be a filmmaker? Why do you want to devote yourself to this? And it's those stories like that, that yeah. your work can impact somebody on such a personal level that it's like, yeah, you can never win an award or go broke. If you directly in that person, then the whole thing's worth it. Yeah. yeah. But then you hear that story and I thought, well, what if that didn't happen? How would he deal with that? And so I took those two threads and I put them together and I made this short film about this guy named Dave who his daughter dies. And he was a guy who barely says two words. He's completely retreated into himself at the death of his daughter. And he starts watching this cartoon that was in the DVD player on the tiny TV in her room and then his obsession grows in that he starts trying to draw the character but he thinks he's failing at every turn it's like somebody who's never picked up a paintbrush before trying to recreate the Sistine Chapel and then afterwards he's dejected and he throws the drawings away but then his nephew who's an animator who that's the thing that the nephew and the daughter connected with he discovers the drawings and he knows what he's trying to do and so he tries to teach his uncle how to draw and it's on YouTube, so you can actually watch it for yourself. Like I said, it's called Rough Sketches. And I imagine if I were to look at it right now, I'd probably see all these massive glaring faults with it and be like, oh God, this is awful. But I know that at the time it worked. I'm glad I did it. At the very least, just to prove to myself that I can do this, that yeah. the whole endeavor is worth it and that I can create something that's actually good. And I know it's good because when I screened it at the film pool in Regina, it was me and four other shorts that were screening there, and mine was in the middle, and mine was the only one that got any actual applause. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how I knew that, okay, this was actually good, where it's like, okay, I can do this. Yeah, it's great to get that kind of validation for your work and just to know, because, I mean, everyone always wants that kind of approval, obviously. But when you get that moment, when you feel like you know that that was the best that you could do at that time, and then you get that sort of approval and everything, basically just saying, yes, you are on the right track. Keep going. This is what you should be doing. That's a sort of, that's a sort of great kind of feeling that we all yearn for. So that's awesome that you were able to get that. Mm -hmm. So from there, so from Rough Sketches, what happens after that? How are you able to take that moment, that feeling of, yes, I'm on the right track, and then move that to the next level? What was that for you? Well, like I said, after I made the short film, I then start over again. And then with this current thing that I'm working on right now, it's this script. It was for the longest time called The Gauntlet, which yep. was a uh, recommendation made by you, actually. Most recently, calling it The Legend of Nikki Olives, which was also a your recommendation as well. So if we have to retitle the movie again, I'll just send you an email. Yep, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, the title right in between there was The Ballad of Nikki Olives. And it was once we were talking a little bit more about one specific line that you had there. Yeah, you can actually hear it. That's what you need to do. In the Nightmare on Elm Street episode that we did on my podcast. Yeah, you'll actually get to hear that moment for yourself when that suggestion was made and how you're able to take it. So a little piece of film history right there in that particular episode. 
And we also had a lot of fun picking apart the Elm Street series. So you get all of it in one shot. So by all means, oh. check that one out. Okay. And also, and I don't know if this will stay in or not. I rewrote the final line of the scene where the tile comes from. I rewrote it as my story wasn't a tragedy. It was a legend. Mm-hmm. I felt good about myself after that. Yeah, it's just looking back on that, I'm like, Tale of Woe, it was a little clunky there. And I know I'm not using the term tragedy properly. That was one of the things I remember from my English class is that people throw the term tragedy around all the time of like a train derailed and 50 people die. What a tragic event. And it's like, well, it's a horrible event, but it's not technically a tragedy. The easiest way to sum it up is that melodrama is something bad happens to a main character from an outside force. Tragedy is something bad happens to a character and it's the character's fault that it happens. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm not using the term tragedy, but it's kind of like that whole literally thing where people don't use the term literally the way that it's actually supposed to be meant. So that's sort of keeping license and just, my story wasn't a tragedy. It was a legend. That just sounds so much better. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. So I'm thrilled with the kind of progress you've made with that. You've been speaking with a screenwriting doctor as well, correct? Yeah, there was this guy, Jeff Iami. He's a story editor here in Winnipeg. And I actually did meet with him recently, a few days ago. And with this latest draft that I have, it's like the sixth draft of the script, The Legend of Nikki Alas. And he says that I am about 75% there. Awesome. And that I just need to do one more polish on it, less dialogue in there. And I'm giving myself the challenge of, okay, let's try to eliminate one sentence. If the character is going on and on, eliminate a sentence or two here to try to get to the point. And then also it's the big thing is just bringing the subtext of Nikki's character up to the forefront so that instead of me having to explain the subtext, you know, this means that the reader can actually see this. And actually, I have a question for you. You've seen maybe not the most recent, recent draft, but I sent it to you in December. And yeah. I don't know if you got around to actually reading it, but from what you have read of it, what do you think? I'm definitely with Jeff on this. I feel like you've definitely made some serious progress with it. The main issue that I always had with it was that it was so easy to take the mother's side. So you were able to blur those lines a little bit more. So that way you could sympathize with what Nikki is going through. That was a big thing. So I'm glad you were able to figure that out. I'm definitely intrigued by it. I can't wait to see how this all turns out. So have you thought about this? Like when it's time to shop it around, have you thought about doing it as a package saying that I want to write and direct it? Or are you just willing to just sell the screenplay and let that go on on its own? Well, I definitely want to write and direct it. I've been living with this script in my mind for the last two years and on set, get the sides every day just to read not only what's going on, but how a screenplay is formatted properly. And I have pages here where I did like a very rudimentary script breakdown where all the different characters, what are the different locations that are in the script, and then figuring out how many days it would take to film this, that if this was super low budget, less than a million dollars or something like that, then we Mm -hmm. could probably do the whole thing in 15 days. And I'm aiming for maybe like a $5 million budget so that we can have 20 to be generous because it's a very dialogue heavy script. And there are a few locations that we can spend a few days at. And then just figuring if we can get one location where we can have a bunch of different scenes in there all at once. This is where being part of the locations department gives you an advantage because then you figure out how you can schedule and budget economically. 
Nice. Yeah. So and then I also have my dream cast in there. And it's funny, I'm working on Burden of Truth. Season one, we were still figuring out how to work together and what the show is. And we did 10 episodes and 16 weeks of 70 hour work weeks at minimum. So like, it's a great job. And it's what I want to do with my life. But it is exhausting. Even yeah. under the best of circumstances, weekends are primarily for sleep. Mm hmm. But with season two, and it helps that when we did Breakthrough, that was kind of like training for the 10K marathon. And mm -hmm. so I'm picturing different actors from Bruno Truth for some of the minor parts where it's like, oh, Peter would be great for uh, his cousin. And here's a role that Kristen can have a cameo in. And I wrote an extra scene of the main character dealing with her drunk roommate. And I'm like, can Anwen play drunk? <laughs> And for the mother, this is a really outside the box idea, but I'm kind of being a feral. Mm -hmm. Terry uh, Farrell, yeah. No, she played Jadzia Dax in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, and I don't think she's actually done officially a movie or a TV show since like 2002. I know she does the con circuit, goes to different Star Trek conventions, and she's actually married to Adam Nimoy now. But I'd like to think of this as she came out of retirement for us. And it's definitely a really good meaty role that Terry Farrell can definitely sink her teeth into. I think she's a solid actress. She has a great presence. And with this particular role, I think she can really do something with it. So, and that was actually going to be my next question regarding the Dreamcast, because I already knew the answer, but I knew that my listeners hadn't yet been given that information. Okay. Should we talk about what the actual movie is about? Yes, actually. Let's go ahead. So tell us just what the Legend of Nikki Olives is all about. What was that storyline that really kind of drove you to get this on paper? Okay, so when I was in university, I met this woman named Ricky Mushrooms, and we never officially dated, but she was the closest thing that I had to a girlfriend at the time. And when she was 13 years old, she left her family of her own volition and lived on the streets for a year, which to me as a guy who's from this very tightly knit family who has a mother who's in constant contact with me about my weight, that to me just sounded incredible. Now, in real life, Ricky, she reconciled with her folks. They made up. She got a degree in education. She's married, and she has a little girl named Louise that's in kindergarten right now. But I always wondered, well, what if that didn't happen? What if she kept running, and what would make her stop? And what if the person who made her stop was from this tightly knit extended family that's run by a matriarch who, and I shit you not, wears an actual gauntlet? And so my project is a feature film. It's a lighthearted drama in the vein of Parenthood the series or Big Sick. When I saw the Big Sick, I was like, oh my God, that is exactly what I'm aiming for. And it's mm -hmm. about three people. It's about a self-made woman who has to learn to let love and family into her life. It's about a somewhat passive guy who has to learn to stand up for himself. And it's about a mother whose identity is all she has left, having to learn to let go. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there's the extended family and a bunch of colorful characters in there and plot twists and turns along the way. But those three arcs, that's basically the whole movie. Nice. And we were talking about being more sympathetic with the mother. Becca's character arc is probably the most complicated of the three arcs because first off, it's based off my actual mother. And if you're wondering, well, why does she wear the gauntlet? It's because and it's in the movie as well. My mom had breast cancer a few years ago and she survived, she's cancer free, but she had to have some of her lymph nodes removed. And so because of that, she has to wear this brown compression glove and sleeve on her right arm. Otherwise, her arm just swells up with 
fluid and she has to have it pumped out every night. And so I was kind of thinking about that. I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you wore a gauntlet underneath the sleeve just to look badass, that sort of thing. And so that was one of my sparks of inspiration for the gauntlet. It's not literally the one ring, but it's the elephant in the room. It's the thing that yeah. nobody talks about, yet we all acknowledge, and that is sort of the symbol of the power and influence she has over her family and especially her son. And eventually, suppose for the movie, the final moment of the movie is not only them throwing away the gauntlet, but Becca gives the gauntlet to Linus and Nikki, the main characters, telling that she doesn't need it anymore. That's very cool. I was really taken with oh, this. And a word of advice, when you're pitching it to people, don't use the infinity gauntlet. Like part of my hook of trying to get people interested is imagine meeting your boyfriend's mother for the first time and she's wearing the infinity gauntlet which after Adventures Infinity War, everyone would know what you're talking about. But I used that as part of the rehearsal for my pitch. And Kyle Irving was like, what's an Infinity Gauntlet? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, you can't rely on pop culture references when you're trying to make a point. Yeah, that's for sure. Because you never know who's going to get it and who's not. So you've recently been able to give this quite an audience. So tell us about your recent trip to a convention where you were able to get some very, very unbelievable ears hearing this particular story. Okay, so technically it wasn't really a convention. It's more like a conference thing where at the Fairmont Hotel here in Winnipeg, every year in January, they have this thing called All Access, where it's all these executives and producers and a bunch of people in the film and TV industry here in Canada, they all come together and there are all these panels and presentations about different things related to our industry. And it's also a really great opportunity for one-on-one -on -one meetings where you arrange these little speed date, 15 minute interviews where you pitch your project to different producers and executives and filmmakers. But I was also there, the Eagle Vision people, it's the production company behind Burden of Truth. They were kind of like the bells of the ball there because on Tuesday, which is the busiest day, they had the first panel there where they were talking about diversity both in front of and behind camera and how integrating that into their business model has led to like some really great success. And so I know these guys and I've gotten to know them fairly well. And I was there primarily just to pitch. And the producer there, Kyle Irving, I talked to him and I said, listen, when you guys are done and you have like a free minute or two, can I rehearse my pitch to you? And he was like, oh yeah, sure. Come see me after lunch and we'll do that. And I thought we were just going to find like a secluded, quiet spot in the foyer and do or like a quick one-on-one -on -one with him because I sort of did that with another guy, Tyson. But what happens instead is that Kyle comes out and there's Kristen Crook, who's the lead actress and number one on the call sheet and one of the executive producers. Her boyfriend, Eric, he's one of the writers on the show. Brad Simpson, the show's creator, Tyson, who is a filmmaker in his own right, and he does all the second unit stuff, and one of the co-producers as well, Duffy, who's our first AD, and then Rebecca Gibbs, Kyle's wife, and who's technically the showrunner of the show, and it's the creative team behind a hit CBC series, and the leading lady who earlier that day I had given books to because Kristen's this big bibliophile, and I gave her a copy of the His Dark Materials trilogy mm -hmm. of Boom Boom Best, Cell Knife, Amber Spyglass. And so I thought it was just going to be Kyle in a secluded spot in the foyer. Instead, him and the whole Eagle Vision people, they come out and they're like, oh, hey, Luke, with us. And so I follow them from the foyer to the elevator, up the elevator, into their hotel room, and I rehearsed my pitch to the big seven behind Burn the Truth. And the whole time I was going up there, I was just thinking, this is what it feels like to be invited to hang out with the cool kids in high school. And then immediately afterwards, 
oh god, when does the pig's blood come in? <laughs> yeah, 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 the whole I, I definitely feel time, I'm just I like, know oh god, it's gonna go horribly wrong and the other shooter is gonna drop, and it didn't. It's one of those things where you almost feel stupid for even thinking of all the downside of that moment because you're not enjoying what's happening right now in front of you. Those are those great out-of-body experiences that you just want to hold on to for the rest of your life. And and if you had told 16-year-old me that not only I would be working alongside Lana Lang, but that I would be giving books to her and rehearsing a movie pitch to her at Big 7 of a hit CDC series, I wouldn't have believed you. And there's still like a tiny part of me that still can't. Like, that's the humbling aspect of it. You need to hold on to that just so that when you get a further success in your field, you don't become like soul, that you can step back and be like, oh my God, I'm actually doing this. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, this is what you have been wanting to do all your life. And now here it is right in front of you. You are actually moving forward on your journey. And it's the journey that you've always wanted to take. That's a wonderful feeling. And I hope that more of our audience really has that sort of feeling as well. So, so that's just amazing. And so we know what you're working on now. We know what's, what's in the near future for you. So where can our listeners find you? Okay, well, Ramblings of a Guy from Regina 2.0 is on iTunes right now. I'm on Facebook, Luke Hannon. I don't really do Twitter anymore because I listened to your recent episode and you described Twitter as a cocktail party. I the last two years, it's basically become an endless parade of sadness and misery, and I only jump on Twitter on occasion. The last time I was on there for any serious amount of time was I live tweeted during the series finale of The Americans. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I still have Twitter. I'm just not on it nearly as much as I was before. Like I said, it became an endless parade of sadness and misery. But yeah. lately, I've really been focusing on my Instagram account because mm-hmm. I went through and I found a bunch of old pictures that's been sitting on an external hard drive. And I went through it and I'm starting to see my Instagram account as the story of my life as opposed to a bunch of pictures of random crap. So in the last few days, I went and I sort of curated my life story of this is pictures of my family friends. This is when it was snowing on the farm that I grew up on. And so I took a few pictures of that. This is a few pictures of me when I was filming one of my student short films at the U of R where I set a bunch of pallets on fire and made a makeshift crane out of a forklift, a pallet, and a sheet of plywood. Wow. I'm looking back on that now, I'm like, oh my God, I was in so many safety violations. And I saw those pictures. They look terrific. So it definitely worked. The effect definitely worked. So I really hope that you guys all find them. It's still Regina Rohde, right? Yeah, it's still Regina Rohde. So I really hope that all you listeners have really taken to heart what this journey that Luke has been on really is. Now, obviously, this is not the end. This is really just the beginning. But at the same time, he worked so long for quite a few years to get to this moment. And now all there is is just constantly getting things ready for what's to come. So I really hope that all of you guys have really enjoyed listening to Luke Annan's journey. I hope that you all just keep on listening as we'll be talking not only with painter Elizabeth Meggs next week, but we'll also be continuing on with our filmmaker miniseries going on to leading up to the Oscars. One last question, though, since this is something I'm going to ask my filmmakers, name one thing that you're looking forward to seeing at the Oscars this month. 
Well, I really hope Regina King wins if Beale Street could talk. I freaking love that movie. I love that movie so much because it's so beautiful. And actually, just to bring it back to Kristen again, she's like this bibliophile and she's actually sort of inspired me to start reading novels again. And the book that I want to read is James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk because I saw this documentary last year called I Am Not Your Negro which is about James Baldwin, white kid growing up on a farm outside Moss Bay, Saskatchewan. I had no idea who James Baldwin was. And then I see this documentary and it's like, oh my God, this guy's incredible. And so yeah. I actually want to read one of his books just to get a sense of who he is as a writer because my God, this guy is one of the most eloquent, articulate, and insightful guys I've ever seen. And so I'm really looking forward to reading his actual work. Yeah. And Beale Street Could Talk is just... Oh my God, it is such a beautiful movie. Wow, this has been just a great look at your journey. This has been uh, very inspiring. And like I said before, I really hope that all of my listeners really take that to heart and remember to have patience on your own journey and just keep plugging away because you're going to hit those milestones. You're going to get those moments where people are going to be saying, yes, you're on the right track. Keep doing what you're doing. And that's what Luke has gotten in his life. That's what he will continue to get. And I see nothing but a great future ahead for him. So thank you all so much for listening. This has been a blast listening to Luke's journey and continuing to listen to all of the different journeys that we have already covered and the many more that are ahead of us. So for Luke Annan, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. We'll see you next week. 